Good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh, my name is Kyle Leffel. I, I serve as a, a pastor here. I'm the pastor of community life here. So if this is your first time, we welcome you. Thank you for being here. I want to invite everyone to turn their Bibles, if they have one, to Hebrews 11, 11 through 19. That's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. That's our gift to you. We would love to resource you with God's word. As There's probably no better way we can uh, bless you than, than God's word. Uh, real quick, shout out to the... Uh, to the Hoosiers, the, the, the almost win, um, the almost comeback. That may be sad that we're referencing uh, a loss, but uh, either way, they're on the rise, so that's encouraging. Um, well, we are in Hebrews 11, 11 through 19, and uh, Hebrews 11 is, is typically been known as uh, the Hall of Faith, so it's a recounting of the biblical figures that God uh, worked through in the past, uh, from Abraham to Enoch to Abel to Joseph, um, all of these people are what the author would say uh, display great faith. And a little bit about Hebrews will be helpful for us as we understand why he's referencing these patriarchs. Hebrews uh, stylistically was written more or less like a sermon, kind of in its structure and its communication. Um, but some context is Hebrews is written to a group of Christians who are suffering immense persecution. They're suffering immense trials and um, being tested in their faith. And they were people who have come from Judaism and become Christians. And so all of a sudden, now I am, I've become a Christian and my life is flipped upside down. Some people, their whole towns are being kind of uh, pillage. Some of their homes are being taken from. Some of the people have even lost their life. And so it begs the question, why I've adopted this Christian faith. I've trusted in Jesus. I believe that he is both fully God, fully man. He died for me on the cross. And now all of this is happening in my life. And the author's encouragement is don't give up. Uh, that, that you can trust and avoid apostasy, which is a denying the faith by walking by faith and trusting and looking back to the people of the Old Testament. Now, we can kind of understand that there may have been an objection um, that people would say, yeah, but the people of the Old Testament, their life was so easy. God just kind of took care of things for them, right? Moses, as he led the Israelites out of Egypt, his whole enemies were drowned whenever Moses split the Red Sea. Or Noah, right? All of his enemies were, were washed out by the flood. Their lives were made so simple. And what the author is saying is, that's not true that these people, they didn't have designer lives. Their lives were not clear cut. They literally, as Abraham did, walked into the unknown. As God calls him in Genesis 12 to get out, go to a land. And Abraham's reply is, where is it? And he says, I'll show you later. I will show you. In other words, these men and these women of old displayed great faith in a time of great uncertainty. And it begs the question for us as we're asking today, in a chaotic time such as 2020, how can I tackle life? How can I handle life when there is so much uncertainty? We're going to see three traits that, uh, in Abraham's life that teach us a lot about biblical faith. One, that faith produces sojourners. Faith produces sojourners. Faith creates new desires and obedience in the Christian life. And lastly, faith finishes, finishes the race. So, 
I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're in, again in Hebrews 11, 11 through 19. I'll read. You can respond with thanks be to God as I say this is the word of the Lord before that. Um, so we're in Hebrews 11, 11 through 19. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, there were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your word and how much we have to learn about faith from the people of old, but God, namely, how much we have to learn about faith from the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for him and his work on the cross, and thank you for that all of your word is profitable, and all of your word encourages us and sharpens us and challenges us. God, uh, Holy Spirit, would you speak through me today as we look at Abraham's life Uh, and how he displayed great faith in the unknown. God, we know that you're sovereign, and we know that no one is here by accident, and so therefore, if people in this room are suffering and hurting, God, would you comfort them? And if, God, there are people in this room who are too comfortable in their place with you, God, if they are not Christians, Lord, would you draw them to yourself, Holy Spirit, for your glory? God, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Faith produces sojourners. We're going to see that in 11 through 13. Abraham uh, has been known as a, a paragon of faith. In fact, the three most dominant religions in the world, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all derive their patriarch in Abraham. They all include Abraham. What is it about Abraham's life that displays such great faith to us? What are we to learn From this. Well, we need to learn a little bit about his life and who he was and why he left, why he answered the call and obeyed such tasks and such calls from God that if we were to have them, we would think this is impossible. A little bit about Abram's life. Abraham was from the land of Ur of the Chaldees, which, um, if if we're using a like today, most uh, biblical scholars would say this is somewhere in southern Iraq, right? Kind of in the in the Kidron Valley. 
area. And what we know is that this land was, was pagan land. It did not worship Yahweh. And we know that because there were, uh, biblical archaeology has found many sacrificial um, altars and things where they would sacrifice to different gods. They, they did not worship the one true God, Yahweh. So in other words, we know that Abraham was an idolater. He did not worship God, but the call of God comes into his life in Genesis 12. And God calls him to such an amazing task. Abraham and Sarah, as some of you know, if you don't, just to recount, Abraham and Sarah were way past age of, of having children. They, Sarah was even barren. And yet God promises, Abraham, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. And in, through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. How is this possible at such an old age? How is it possible with Sarah being barren? I'm going to give you a son. How? This is, this is the great uh, call that God puts on Abraham's life. And yet, he calls him to get out. Right? In the King James Version, it's a different translation. Literally, it just translates in Genesis 12, where, Ab- where God speaks to Abraham. He says, get out. And some, one pastor says, kind of issues this kind of dialogue that Abraham and God would have had, that God comes to Abraham and says, get out. Well, where am I going to go? God just says, I'll tell you later where you're going to go. And I'm going to give you this land. When? I'll tell you later. But in the meantime, wander in tents. And I'm going to give you a son, Isaac. I'm going to give you an heir. How? Sarah is barren, and, and as Hebrews says, uh, one, from one man whom is him as good as dead. We're born descendants, right? He was as good as dead. He was old, way past age. How? I'll tell you later. And then when Abraham receives Isaac, old in age, yet receives a beautiful boy, God says, now sacrifice him. Why? Why? Why would you ask me to do that? you'll see later, right? This is often the call of the Christian life to obedience and the unknown, the uncomfortable, the uncertain, and, 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 and definitely reiterate the uncomfortable. This is not the way we would naturally choose or want faith to be like. We want faith to be clear. We want it to be clean cut. We want the directions. We know what to do. We wanna know what to do and when to do it. We would like faith to operate like Google Maps, Right? or if you're into navigational heresy ways, okay? Uh, we, want it to know, we want to know what to do. But oftentimes when we approach the Bible, it's not clear cut, is it? God is stretching our faith. God is often calling us to reliance and to dependency on his promise, just like Abraham dis- displayed, because faith disturbs the status quo. Think about an exile and a stranger, in verse 13, if you look, it says, these all died in faith. So, so we're going to see that they finished the race. They died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were what? Strangers and exiles on the earth. Think about that. What's that word? What are, what are, the, what are the things that uh, it conjures up? Uncomfortable, uncertain, unfamiliar, painful, you name it. This is the exact opposite of what we think faith should be like or that it is. Faith is more like a labyrinth, right? It should be like a labyrinth. A labyrinth, if you've ever been in it, it's those green gardens that you can walk through and you can take a right and then you can take a left and you really can't mess up. But faith is never like that. 
It wasn't like that for Abraham and Sarah. Go out, leave Ur, leave your country. Go, where? I'll show you later, wander in tents. Friends, we often prefer a a faith of comfort and ease and planned, structured, and it never is. We often say, okay, if you're gonna call me to get out, I'll get out. I'll, I'll do as Abraham did, or I'll even trust you by faith. But first, you have to tell me where I'm going, and you have to tell me if the circumstances that I'm gonna walk in are gonna, are gonna be the ones I like. Because if it doesn't, well, then I'm not bought in. I'm not gonna go out. Why would I? I have rights, right? I have my rights. But this is not surrendering your will, which is what faith is. It's an attempt to stay in control of your life. Faith makes you an exile. You're a citizen of another kingdom, Christian or pilgrims in this world at best. It gives you a green card. Philip Ryken, the pastor and biblical scholar, says this about faith. The life of faith demands that we live in a dissonance with the unbelieving world. A life of faith is not anti-cultural, but countercultural. Thus, a vibrant faith is always matched with a sense of dis-ease, a pervasive in-betweenness, a sense of being a camper. This, this does not mean, of course, that, that Abraham was separate from culture, To the contrary, the Genesis record reveals that he was deeply involved in the politics of the land. But there was always that dissonance. He was never at home. Friends, it is natural for us to want to to not just have a physical home, but to make something other than God our home, to, to abide in it, to make this is the object of my life. This is the reason why I'm living. This is God. But it's not God. This is the temptation for us. Even as people who have trusted in Jesus by faith, we drift into what's called idolatry. John Calvin said the heart is an idol factory, always wanting to center and make our home in someone, something, whatever, you name it. Whether it be money, whether it be my career, my reputation, my physical home, my my possessions, my family, my marriage, my friendships, all good things. But we are so prone, the natural bent, the default position of the heart is to make something other than God home for us. And what God wants to do is show that those things are hollow. My favorite philosopher is a a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was (laughs) anything but a Christian. But he uh, was what you would call an iconoclastic Philosopher, So he challenged the cultural norms, beliefs, and institutions of his time and tried to show that they were hollow, right? There, there's nothing to them. And he, mostly with Christianity, trying to show that Christianity is what he called herd mentality. This is absurd, right? We don't have time to go into why that's wrong. But, but he has a quote. He says, there are more idols than realities in the world to hammer and perhaps to hear as a reply that famous hollow Sound. What's that metaphor saying? What he tried to do in his own words about his own work is try to tap the idols of the world and show that they're hollow. But friends, God God does the same thing with us oftentimes in our faith, right? He wants to tap the things that we have put so much weight on, so much reliance on, so much of our significance on, and show lovingly and patiently that they're hollow. They're not me. They're not home, right? They're not home. Um, you know, a, a, a park is a beautiful thing. It's awesome. I take my kids there. They tear it up, right? Luffle boys tear up Bryan Park, right? All caught. It's their playground, bro. 
right? But a park is beautiful, but it's not home. It's not home. Therefore, when people start to build their lives in it, when they start to make homes in park, parks, what happens to the park? It starts to go down in value. It starts to be just viewed as kind of crummy. Why? Because it's not meant to be your home. It can't bear the, the freight, the weight of your life. You know, there's a lot of really good things in, our, in this world that God, good gifts from God to enjoy. But I'm asking, where is your citizenship? Money is good. Success is good. Marriage is beautiful and God-honoring. So is family. Entertainment, sports. This life, has, this life has a lot of good things. Good food, good drink, all to the glory of God. But they're not home. They're not home. We are strangers and exiles in this world, friends. First John 2 encourages us, if you are a Christian, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abraham knew this, right? Abraham knew that this world is a park. It's not my home. That faith and his citizenship, knowing that he is a sojourner and a stranger in this world, compelled him and pushed him out to live a life of faith. And it can and it should do it to us. Which brings me to my next point. How are we to do this? That faith, in verses 14 and 16, shows us that salvific faith, biblical faith, being a Christian, produces new desires and obedience in our life. Verse 14, look, if you would, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. We can make an observation that, okay, because I'm a sojourner and stranger in this world, it doesn't mean that I, I don't have a home or long for a home. No, you do. It's just not in this world. If, that had been th- if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had every opportunity to return. Their, their desires were, were focused. They had a vision of the future, of God's promises, right? Not that they didn't rest in the fact of what the promise was necessarily, but who made it? Who is it that just promised me that I'm gonna make you a great nation? Who just promised Sarah that you, you will be with child? These are audacious promises, but not if they're from God. Not if they're from God. And what faith does when we trust in the gospel is it changes our desires. That by grace, God puts a new set of desires into our hearts that quite literally rescues us from us. Faith creates a new heart with new desires to where we can finally, as Psalm 1 talks about, delight in the law of the Lord. That we can delight in God's law that finally for the first time, what I want to do and what I ought to do can be the same thing. Do we do that perfectly? Well, no, right? We live in this in-between already but not yet world where we have been justified by faith, but we're still sinful and we wrestle with sin, right? But the life of faith is constantly producing desires to want to glorify God in everything from my work to my family to my money to whatever. It produces obedience, But let me show you verse 16. There's a lot I could say, but I want to spend time on 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, this is a verse 
that is quite amazing. God is not ashamed to be their God. Notice the therefore, which anytime you see a therefore, go back to the previous sentence or clause, right? But as it is, they desire a better country. Okay, so why is God not ashamed to be Abraham and Sarah's God when it is so shameful to be without child in that time? Because they desire, because they desire him, right? Faith produces new desires, Because they desired God and trusted in his promises, God was not ashamed to be their God. And for those who have trusted in the gospel, God is not ashamed of you. Friends, isn't that amazing? Um, We were on a straight shot to wrath, all of us, by our deeds, by our actions, by our thought life. Yet God has set his loving kindness on us in Jesus, in the gospel. Where we once were enemies, we are now children of him, and he is not ashamed to be your God. He is not ashamed to be blank's God. Insert your name. That is, that is something you can live a whole life on, friends. Think about the biblical irony. Me, you, who give God ample reason in our sin daily to be ashamed of us, is not ashamed of you in Christ. In other words, if you think about how the devil would make an argument against Kyle Ethel, it would be very easy. He would go to God and say, look at Kyle Ethel's track record. And the thing would just scroll down. Are you sure you're his God? And what God would say for anyone who's in crisis, I am not ashamed. Isn't it ironic that we who give God ample reason to be ashamed is not, but we who have zero reason to be ashamed of God often are. Friends, the Christian life is one where we should be growing in faith, where we can say, like Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Faith creates desires where we are unashamed of what God has done for us. But there is a warning, because there is a counterfeit type of faith that can occur in our lives, right? We think about a counterfeit. What is a counterfeit? It looks so right. It looks so true. It looks authentic. It looks real, but it's fake, right? We know this can display out and we know the right theological words to say. We know the Christian lingo. We can even know to be somewhat vulnerable with the, with the sin in our life, but it can just be mere talk, right? It can just be mere talk. We talk about a faith that is in the abstract, something that has never really changed us from the inside out or that we think has, but trials, persecution, pain, testing, which inevitably come as we see in verse 17, that Abraham was tested. Every Christian faith will be tested in this life. When those come, when testing comes, as Mark 4 predicts, that the sun either scorches it out or the thorns and weeds choke it out, right? You know, there's a saying that I heard, I can't remember who says it, but the same sun that melts wax hardens clay, The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. What do I mean? Trials, the going out, the trusting God by faith in the disappointing, even when it hurts. For some, it will only harden you. God, I knew this was gonna happen. I trusted you. I I became a Christian and now this comes into my life. I'm out. This is ridiculous, right? These things happen to us. You become cynical, hardened, even angry. And eventually you just say, as I have seen many times, 
I just don't care anymore. I'm, I, I'm, I'm out, tapped out. I'm not doing this Christian thing. Why would I? But for the Christian, the going out, being a sojourner, obeying even when it's hard, it pushes us more into God's loving arms. For we say, as the disciples say to Jesus in John 6, when when majority of his disciples leave Jesus, he turns to, to Peter and says, are you gonna go too? And what does Peter say in John 6? He says, to whom are we gonna go? You alone have the words of eternal life. This was true of Abraham, right? He trusted God by faith. These tests, these trials only made him trust God more. Paul says this in Romans 4.20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. James 1, 2 through 4 says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or 1 Peter 4, 12, beloved, think about that. Beloved, you're loved in Christ, deeply loved, and yet pain is coming. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So often in life, we think it's so strange that X, Y, and Z is happening. And the Bible says, think it not strange. Abraham didn't think it strange. Neither should we. We can either see trials through eyes of this world and think, why on earth, why me? Or we see them through the eyes of faith and not be surprised why, because this is not our primary home. This world is not our home. And because faith changes our desires, the primary language of the people of God, I'm convinced, is groaning, groaning, longing, wanting. Not, not groaning because of what's necessarily going on at work, although that may be disappointing. Not groaning because of what's happening in family life or, or whatever it means. It's groaning as a holy discontentment. That this is not my home and I long for a city that we see in verse eight has foundations because this world has none. That I long for a, found, a foundation. I long for Jesus in the city that he's building for us. Philip Ryken gives us some helpful questions to ask about our lived faith with God. Let me ask some of them. Does God's, when you approach God's word, not only does God say it, but will I obey it, obey it no matter the cost? Abraham didn't know where he was going. It didn't matter that he was clueless to where he was going, how I'm gonna have a child, why I should have sacrificed my child when you give him to me at this age. But he obeyed. He obeyed. One person I heard say, can't remember who, but we don't look through God's promises or commands. We don't go around them. We don't go under them. We don't go over them. We look at them and we'd submit to them and obey them because they're for our joy and for his glory. Another question, do we believe that God's word, what God's word says about money, about purity, about holiness, about reconciliation and conflict, about suffering, it's promised, about marriage, about judgment, about salvation. Here's another one. What are you praying for? What are you going to the Lord to and asking him for other than material wants or things on your agenda? Are we praying for our coworkers, if you're a Christian in here, or our neighbors or opportunities to share our faith with them? Are we praying for the suffering, the sick, the poor in our community? 
You know, there are things that we often think God could never do that. God could never save this person. God would never do that if I asked him. In Genesis 18, God comes to Abraham and says, in a year's time, Sarah's gonna be without child. And Sarah's behind him. And she laughs and she says, at this age, I'm gonna be without child. And God says, why did you laugh? Here it is. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Friends, oh, that's a promise to take into our prayer life. That's a promise to take into our prayer life. When we have given up on certain people, lost hope on people, whether it be a boss, a relative, um, someone that you've known your entire life, when we just give up, that means that we don't believe that our personal faith is a miracle. And Ephesians 1 says it is. Here's one question that I took from J.D. Greer. What in your life in the last six months can only be explained by answered prayer? What in your life in the last six months can only be explained by answered prayer? Let me give you an encouragement from an old hymn to come to God. God, Jesus, and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 gives us this radical push to ask, to ask, to ask God for things. Uh, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Let's go, let's ask, friends. And lastly, faith finishes. Verse 17 through 19, faith finishes. It finishes the task, right? In verse 18, it says, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, um, But if you go back up, uh, it says, he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. In that language, it it gives the the picture of a, a completed task. In other words, Abraham completed the task that God called him. He finished the task. Friends, Chris said something last week that was really helpful. It's not how you start the race. It's how you finish it. It's how you you finish it. And and the Christian life will be a race with many ups and downs. In fact, look at at verse 19, the word considered. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That word consider translates to a word from which we get the word logarithm. It means to compute, to reason. Faith is not less thinking, but it's more thinking. It's, It's reasoning out. In other words, it was very logical for Abraham to make the decisions to leave, to trust God, to do what he did, to obey what he did. Not because of the promises, those are outrageous, but of who made the promises to them. The creator of the universe just made these promises to them. It's only logical that he would obey. He's made some to us. Will we obey them? You know, in our culture, we say, it doesn't matter what you believe, just have ultimate confidence, ultimate faith. Give it your all. It doesn't matter what you believe. But the Bible says the opposite. It doesn't matter how much gusto you have, only if what you believe is true. Only if what you believe is true. Faith in Jesus is not an absence of thinking where we make a mental agreement to, to, to ignore data. It's a reasoning. It's saying, did Jesus rise? Did he live? Did he die on my behalf? And if he did, it demands my life. Christianity is not true because it gives you comfort. It gives you comfort because it is true. Jesus really did rise. C.S. Lewis says this. Philip Reichert again says, how did Abraham come to such a massive exercise of faith? He weighed the human impossibility of becoming a father 
against the divine impossibility of God being able to break his word. And he decided that since God is God, nothing is impossible. Friends, let me go back to finishing the race. It's not how you start, it's how we finish. And some of you say, well, yeah, but that's great for Abraham and Sarah. I'm not Abraham and Sarah. They were great examples of faith, moral uh, examples, but we forget. You know, Abraham and Sarah had many blunders. Uh, Genesis 12 and 20, Abraham lies and tells, him, tells that his wife is actually his sister, right? And then they, Sarah and Abraham engage Hagar to have Ishmael, right? There are many ups and downs, but they obeyed. They followed by faith. And the road to greater faith inevitably is often with ups and downs, peaks and valleys. One, quote, one uh, Christian philosopher says this, those who believe that they believe in God, but without passion in their hearts, without anguish in mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, without an element of despair, even in their consolation, believe only in the God idea, not in God himself. Some of us are in spots in life right now where finishing the race, being faithful, feels so difficult. The application is actually not to say, I want to be like Abraham and Sarah. In fact, what we need to do is to see what they saw. What did they see? They saw God's covenant faithfulness in the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 15. But God wants us to see something too. He wants us to see the cross. Faith calls us to a sojourn life, an exile life. How are we to do that? Look at Jesus, who literally left the throne of God above, not knowing where he went, trusting God. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. We're called to desire and to obey God, even if it hurts, to display the faith that Abraham had. But look at Jesus, who says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me in the garden of Gethsemane, when pain and anxiety unimaginable were hitting him. He said, take this cup from me, not my will, but your will be done. And how are we going to finish this race? Some of us are in this Christian race and we are in times where it feels so impossible. It feels so hard, so difficult. Look to Jesus who literally said, it is finished on the cross. And who says in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he did, friends. He did. And that's our hope. That's our grounds. That's the object of our faith. If you have trusted in Jesus by faith, if you are walking by faith and not by sight, God is not ashamed of you. This deep love, the deep love and display of Jesus will turn, in turn, cause you to feel how, fall, how Paul felt in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And one day, he's gonna bring you to a city. And in that city, right in the middle of it, will be your chief desire, the Lord himself. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, you are the covenant-keeping God, faithful to generation after generation. God, you are faithful to us even when we are not faithful to you. Help us to leave today being faithful and obedient to you, to understand our identity as sojourners and exiles in this world. And by that realization, to finish this race day by day, but understanding that, that we have a race to run, as Paul says. 
Help us to run in such a way as to win the prize. God, we love you. Help us to love you more. Help us to be obedient throughout the week. Help us to be on mission, to be a gospel-centered community on mission. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.